This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at China's foreign policy, especially in relation to its international development and education efforts. With me is Elizabeth Economy, who has recently published the book, The World According to China. One other big element is sort of the export of restrictions on freedom of speech. And, you know, traditionally, China had red lines, primarily around sovereignty issues, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the South China Sea, Xinjiang. Basically, you knew that if you started to tread into the these areas, right, you could end up in some kind of trouble with China. Elizabeth Economy is Senior Advisor for China to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. She is on leave from her position as Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Elizabeth Economy, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much, Will. Great to be here. Can you tell me the story of Professor Li Jianchen? Sure. Chen Jianli, or CJ, as he likes to go by, is, a, I think, one of many, many Chinese scientists who was trained in part in China and then came to the United States to receive his PhD. He rose very quickly through the ranks of uh, the U.S. sort of higher educational system had a number of uh, impressive uh, positions, was at uh, Weill Cornell, then ended up at Mount Sinai uh, in New York City, where he managed a you know, significant lab, very popular professor. And all the time, you know, he also uh, continued to maintain his ties with the Chinese community, uh, served as a sort of representative for Chinese Peking University and sort of the Chinese community in, in New York City, uh, alumni community, and uh, really just a wonderful and, and generous man. In 2013, uh, as part of the sort of Thousand Talents program, which is basically uh, China's way of attracting uh, scientific talent uh, to China, doesn't have an open immigration policy the way that many countries do, so it doesn't have a natural way of getting scientific, international scientific talent to the country. He went back and um, in general, I would say that the program has been mostly successful uh, in attracting Chinese scientists back to China. Uh, so many Chinese scientists who are trained in the United States or the UK or elsewhere decide to stay in those countries. But China has, through the attraction of uh, supporting these scientists with very large labs and, and you know, sort of great opportunities and housing and, and guaranteed education for their children, has managed to bring uh, a number back. And CJ went back, but he went back for a slightly different reason than many. He went back uh, because he was also interested in promoting educational reform in China. And so with the support of the president of Peking University, um, he helped to establish really this innovative program at Yuanpei uh, College within the university where, you know, he introduced students uh, to everything from John Stuart Mill, you know, to movies that revealed sort of freedom of the press in the United States. And so it was a, it was a values education as sort of a Western liberal arts education. I think that's the way I would put it. It's not um, something that's traditionally focused on in, in Chinese universities, the idea of sort of a broad-based introduction to the humanities and the social sciences and the arts. And I think that's what he really was trying to bring uh, to China. And how did it go over? Initially, it went over reasonably well. There was a lot of excitement among the students. Um, some faculty were very enticed by the program, a number of university's best faculty joined him. Um, it was an experiment. And so this was 2013, which, and the date is important because this was still early stages of the Xi Jinping uh, period. And so there was a little bit of that leftover 
enthusiasm, I'd say, from the late 2000s when China really seemed to be opening up politically, you know, especially on the Internet. In any case, uh, 2018 rolls around. Things became more difficult, I think, uh, through that period. But when 2018 rolled around, 2017, when Xi Jinping upended the two-term limit on the presidency, uh, CJ uh, published a piece that basically criticized intellectuals um, in China for not standing up and pushing back against this type of action and, you know, sort of said they have no spine, whereas their moral courage, their sense of moral courage and, uh, you know, campaign, you know, soon emerged against him and he was stripped of all of his sort of official positions within the university. He was able to retain his lab and his professorship, um, but he came back to the United States and, you know, stayed in the U.S., but but decided he would go back and, and continue to work with his students and his lab. And he has done that ever since then. But I think it was devastating for him uh, on a personal level, given the hope and enthusiasm he had to see that completely you know, obliterated uh, over the course of five years as China began to clamp down, really, and to restrict Western ideas and liberal influences uh, within its educational system. And so what does this this anecdote tell you about Xi Jinping's mode of governing China today? I think there's no mystery at this point about the direction in which uh, Xi Jinping has moved China uh, domestically, which is to say really becoming much more authoritarian, much more repressive, much less interested in you know, Western ideas flowing, you know, I think that was you know, one of the things about Deng Xiaoping when he initiated the period of reform and opening was that he welcomed ideas from outside. He thought that China had a lot to learn from the international community. And I think for Xi Jinping, uh, he seeks to restrict sort of those ideas, you know, foreign ideas and foreign capital from coming into the country. And just to offer one other example, I mean, aside from the restrictions on the internet, which I think everybody appreciates now, China passed a law in 2017 that limited the role of foreign non-governmental organizations in China, taking them from more than 7,000 down to about 400. And these are organizations that work with their Chinese counterparts on issues like poverty alleviation and health care and migrant education, environmental protection. And it really, you know, has constricted and constrained the space for civil society engagement between China and the outside world. So I think what happened to CJ is, is part and parcel of a, of a much tighter political environment domestically and much less engagement and openness to ideas from the outside. And what then, you know, in your book, you say that China's foreign policy in many ways mirrors or is based on sort of this domestic governance model that you've just explained. So how do we start making sense of China's foreign policy today? Um, I think it's domestic governance model. So how China expresses that on the global stage. I think we just there are a number of ways. Let me just point to two. One, you could look at an initiative like the Belt and Road Initiative, which is you know China announced in 2013 is basically this grand scale infrastructure project that has evolved and more. There's a digital infrastructure element to it, a health silk road. I think everybody knows about it by now, uh, but it's it is a grand scale enterprise. But if you look at how it has evolved in other countries, it is basically the export of the China model. It is 
rapid infrastructure-led growth that produces a lot of debt. And so that happened in China as well. It was internal to China. These countries owe a lot of their debt to, to China because it's lending them money. It, with all the attendant externalities, right, environmental pollution and degradation, uh, labor issues surround these Belt and Road projects, just as they did when China went through this, you know, very rapid period of infrastructure uh, growth. Issues around governance, the lack of transparency, the lack of rule of law. So that's one way that you can see China's exporting its model, say, primarily to, you know, emerging economies. I think one other big element um, is sort of the export of restrictions on freedom of speech. And, you know, traditionally, China had red lines primarily around sovereignty issues, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the South China Sea, Xinjiang. Basically, you knew that if you started to tread into these areas, right, you could end up in some kind of trouble with China, right? You need to be careful about what you said. What we've seen over the past few years is, you know, these red lines are proliferating. And so, you know, Australia is facing a boycott of many of its top exports to China because it called for an investigation into the origins of COVID. You know, you have three Wall Street Journal reporters expelled from China because the paper published an opinion piece by somebody not even affiliated with the Wall Street Journal uh, that used the title The Sick Man uh, of Asia. So you started to see there's a Beijing city discussed passing a law that would criminalize criticism of traditional Chinese medicine. I think, you know, after a big case in the United States around Hong Kong, where the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, and, you know, precipitated a number of sort of sanctions on the uh, Chinese sanctions against the uh, NBA. CCTV, you know, said something very interesting, which was that issues related to sovereignty and social stability do not fall within the purview of free speech. And I think that's really critical, right? So here, China is punishing someone who's using a, a U.S. platform, Twitter, that's not even available to the average Chinese citizen or something he said about Hong Kong. But beyond that, uh, China is now saying, the Chinese government is now saying that anything that touches on social stability, anything that China considers to be potentially challenging to its social stability can result in this kind of you know, sanction. And I think that's very troubling. That really is the sort of external, externalizing of its repression. Um, so I think that is a, a that's another way in which the model is being reflected in the way that China approaches its foreign policy. And is it having an impact in these other countries, like the examples that you gave of the MBA and the Houston Rockets? Did that have, you know, a material impact on the MBA when the Houston Rockets general manager made that tweet? Well, I think it had a, a couple of impacts, actually. I think initially the impact was the NBA responded by apologizing and, you know, several of the team members said, hey, we love China. <laughs> you know, this is his personal opinion. The manager of the Brooklyn Nets, Joe Tsai, who's one of the co-founders of Alibaba, and he's the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, sorry, not the manager, the owner, came out and said, listen, you can't talk about Taiwan, Hong Kong. You have to recognize these are really sensitive issues. There's a lot of sort of backpedaling and concern. And then, you know, it was like a, a flip of a switch. And I think people stood back and realized that what China was trying to control free speech in the United States, that is one of our fundamental rights and simply not acceptable. And so you had an enormous backlash. First, I would say, you know, against to some extent the NBA's equivocating around it and then 
the head of the NBA, Adam Silver, came out and said, listen, we stand for free speech and we are not going to, you know, have Daryl Morey retract his statement. You know, this is whatever we stand behind him. And then I think it was like a wake up call for people. And they really began to look at other times when China was trying to exert this kind of control over free speech and and push back and happen in a video game instance. And, and so now I think people are much more attuned to this and I think much more prone to push back. You know, Hollywood is under spotlight in the United States um, because it traditionally has been willing to accommodate China on a number of issues like this. So I think it's one of those instances where China probably overplayed its hand and it, and it stirred the pot. And now everybody focuses on this in a way that they really hadn't before. That's quite interesting. I was also quite fascinated in your book where you talked about the World Health Organization and how China really advanced the idea of traditional Chinese medicine as being a good remedy to COVID-19. And the WHO sounds like they've actually adopted that or accepted it at some level within their organization. So the World Health Organization, you're right. So that is another way, you know, China has been successful. I would say very successful. But again, here too is another example where once people became alert to the idea that China was using international institutions to advance narrower sort of, you know, Chinese priorities around things like internet governance and human rights. And in the case that you're raising sort of in the World Health Organization, there's been more pushback against that. Um, and certainly the Belt and Road, China's really pushed the Belt and Road in, within the UN. But in the case of the traditional Chinese medicine, I think the objection that people had to the World Health Organization sort of adopting the traditional Chinese medicine was that it did it without subjecting. So basically it said that traditional Chinese medicine is a legitimate way for doctors globally to uh, evaluate people's illnesses. And so as a diagnostic tool, actually, what people, what scientists globally uh, were concerned about, what they expressed to the World Health Organization was that traditional Chinese medicine didn't have to undergo the same rigorous testing that Western medicine had to go through in the same, to receive the same kind of categorization. And so how did that happen? And I think there was a sense that China somehow you know, played the game and managed to, to influence the system. I'm not sure that the World Health Organization has come out and said that uh, traditional Chinese medicine can address uh, the challenges of, of COVID-19, but certainly we know that it was reluctant, at least publicly, to be critical of China in the early stages of the pandemic, and mistakenly so, I would say. And in organizations like the World Health Organization, but others as well globally, some of these big multilateral agencies. How does China exert its influence? Is it, is it simply money? Is, is it about, you know, funding organizations that have historically had a difficult time raising funding from the global community? Or are they also, in addition, exerting influence in other ways? So one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that, for example, with the World Health Organization, China is not a particularly significant donor uh, to the World Health Organization. The United States far outpaces it, you know, not only in terms of its actual contributions, but in terms of the philanthropic element, right, the private donations, you know, China's not, doesn't even rank on, on the list in, in that area. Instead, I would say that many countries, including the United States, have often viewed the United Nations and multilateral institutions as a kind of second tier place for operating globally, right? Certainly the UN Security Council, you know, is a focal point. 
but UN institutions and agencies, that's not really where many uh, of the mo more powerful countries have put a lot of their resources, aside from financial resources. But China has used the UN. China has seen the United Nations as an important space for it, in part because it argues it didn't have an op the opportunity to set the rules of the game you know, earlier uh, in the post-World War II era. The UN is a place where not only does it sit in the UN Security Council, but it has operated you know, as a sort of de facto head of the G77, the emerging economy. So it plays an important role. I'd say the way that it has exerted influence is, you know, first by getting its officials into leadership positions. You know, when I was writing the book, you know, at that point, China held four out of 15 of the top positions in the major UN agencies and programs. Unheard of. No, no other country even comes close, right? That's one important way. And we've seen, and I provide some examples, you know, how China can use those positions for its own benefit, you know, for blocking the head of the World League or Congress from testifying in a UN forum. I mean, literally blocking, pulling him out of the hallway of the UN and removing him, right, physically removing him from that. Or, I mean, in a, as a very petty example, the International Civil Aviation Organization blocking people who tweet, you know, from, from their feed, blocking people who tweet that Taiwan should be a member. Uh, of the organization. I mean, that, to, you know, it's kind of ridiculous, you know, very petty use of their power because the, the head of that organization was a, is a Chinese official. So, and then the Belt and Road Initiative, right? You know, they have something like 25 or 26, you know, MOUs or joint programs uh, with different parts of the United Nations that support in some way the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think part of it is it, it can seem helpful, right? It can seem helpful or, and it can seem benign. But the truth is that when China doesn't get its way, right, then you see that it's not so benign and it's not so helpful. And, you know, one example that I provide is that when the UN in 2019, when uh, UN mission to Afghanistan, uh, the bill to reauthorize the, the mission uh, was uh, under discussion, uh, China threatened to veto the bill if it didn't include language in support of China's Belt and Road, which, you know, what is China's Belt and Road doing in there anyway? And so the United States and some other countries pushed back. And eventually, uh, after two threats in a period of nine months, China backed down. But that's the kind of narrow sort of the use of these international institutions for China's narrow self-interest that I think is troubling. And China's becoming more and more assertive, it seems, outwardly. And I mean, it's becoming a rather common topic, at least in my world. More and more people are talking about sort of the assertiveness of China. The, the other institution, I mean, it's not only China working in existing institutions and exerting its influence through them. It's also creating new global international institutions. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is the Asian International and Investment Bank. You know, what is the AIIB and why is it so important in your opinion? The AIIB, as you suggest, was a Chinese initiative in uh, 2014. Xi Jinping proposed it, and many countries were very excited by it. Uh, China is uh, the largest bilateral source of development uh, funding and infrastructure funding, certainly. So in the West have long called on China to be, quote, a responsible stakeholder uh, to set up institutions that, you know, or participate in pre-existing institutions uh, in a way that uh, would bolster them 
uh, and certainly would be uh, commensurate with, with China's you know, position as the world's second largest economy. Uh, so when China stood up the AIB, you know, kind of as a complement to the World Bank uh, and the Asian Development Bank, I think most countries viewed it as a positive sign. The United States was concerned that China would somehow use it for its own purposes or that the way that the AIIB would operate would be like its own development banks, uh, China Export-Import Bank, China Development Bank, which are not known for best practices in terms of their governance. Uh, uh, we talked earlier about sort of the environmental issues, social issues, uh, you know, lack of transparency. All of those are present with China's uh, major banks. But AIB actually became something different, and it does operate you know, very close to, if not at, you know, world-class standards uh, in terms of its governance. And, uh, but what it has been is very small. And so I think one of the interesting things that's emerged is that you know, China has not funded the AIIB at near the same level that it's funded China Development Bank or China Exim Bank. And other countries participate, of course, in AIB, which they don't in the other two Chinese banks. But when you look at the impact of the AIB, truly in the world of development finance, it's been marginal. And so it's there and it stands as a positive example, I think, overall of China's ability to, to play within existing sort of international norms. But in point of fact, China does not use it the way that it uses the other banks, which don't operate. This podcast, of course, is very much about education. So, you know, I'd be remiss not to ask about the role that education plays in China's foreign policy. And, you know, what, in a sense, is China doing globally when it comes to using education and for its soft power in a way? So I think probably there are are two ways in which China is engaging globally in in sort of education. I I mean, certainly it's engaged traditionally by sending its students out to other countries uh, to be educated. You know, the United States, we have between 350 and 400,000 Chinese students. So, you know, we've been an enormous magnet in the U.S. for many of China's best and brightest traditionally. I think the the way that China is engaging now in it as a power in its own right, however, first, it's providing a lot of scholarships to students to come to study in China. It can be for students, it could be for journalists, it could be for officials from other countries to come and learn the China model. You know, that's a, a big new initiative of uh, Xi Jinping's, you know, that China has a model, a development model that others can learn from. You know, some of these programs can be several years of funding, some can be for a week training course. So it's difficult, you know, you can see China's providing 80,000 scholarships, you know, for students from Africa. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand exactly what that education entails. And so you don't really know what it means, but they're certainly out there doing a lot of bringing students in, although COVID has certainly constrained that. That's one way. The other way that I think many people are, are familiar with is Confucius Institutes. And this was a pre Xi Jinping initiative dated back to about 2004. And, and the idea was basically that China would support, you know, Chinese language training and cultural sort of exchange, provide cultural programming for universities, in some cases for primary and, and high schools. And sometimes, in rare cases, they're standalone uh, Confucius Institutes. You know, initially, I think there was a lot of excitement about Confucius Institutes, and certainly in the United States, for many universities and colleges that either didn't have Chinese language programs or had sort of very nascent, small ones, 
you know, expensive to teach, especially if you don't have a lot of students. These were a godsend because, you know, it's kind of wholesale, right? China provided the curriculum, it provided the teachers, just set everything up for you one-stop shop. But gradually, some professors, notably a professor at the University of Chicago, began to question the governance around these Confucius Institutes, the fact that the contracts with the universities were closed and secret. That was a condition that the Chinese government put on them. The fact that the Chinese uh, government basically picked the teachers and the curriculum, I think, was a source of consternation uh, for many people. I think back to when I studied newspaper Chinese in graduate school. You could read anything. and But could you imagine a Chinese language teacher, you know, from Beijing, from you know, mainland China, teaching a course on newspaper Chinese that would talk about protests in China or would talk about Chinese, uh, you know, assertiveness in the South China Sea? Probably not right, or even would reference Tiananmen openly. So I think those kinds of issues began to surface, and you had a lot of concern in the United States, within Congress, certainly calling for universities to close their uh, Confucius Institutes. And I think the, the fact that these Confucius Institutes were established with governance norms, they were outside traditional U.S. university norms. You would never allow another country to choose the teachers and the curriculum, right? I think that began to rankle. And so I think the not that it started in the United States, other countries, Canada, Sweden, many other countries globally began to become concerned. There was an additional concern about Chinese influence emanating from these Confucius Institutes, you know, trying to ensure that the Dalai Lama never spoke at a university, you know, how were the heads of these Confucius Institutes engaging with the Chinese students on campus? Were they rallying them around certain causes? So I think those concerns also arose. I found fewer examples of that than I think one might imagine from the attention that the media would pay. But just because I didn't find them doesn't mean they weren't there. So I think that in the end, what I found was, you know, China had pledged to have a thousand Confucius Institutes by 2020. It has slightly more than half of that. And, and I think the reason for that is the rollback in many countries of these Confucius Institutes. And it's kind of just another example of, I think, where you know Xi Jinping announces something big, although he didn't announce this one, but, the, but he certainly encouraged it. And it doesn't quite materialize in the, the way that you might think. And it causes some consternation or conflict sort of among different communities, you know, either at local universities or within different international organizations, as you have explained previously. Seems like, you know, the assertiveness of China is growing and there's all these different sectors and angles that it's happening. And at some points, it sort of bubbles up into, you know, a real sort of conflict in a sense, and then things have to be walked back. Do you see looking into the future, like is a political conflict inevitable, like the international system that has particular values and the this Chinese model that you see growing that has different values and norms. I mean, are we coming to a conclusion where there's just going to have to be a big conflict between the two? Or will these sort of systems coexist simultaneously in the world? So I think whether they come to a big conflict probably depends on how aggressively China pushes. Uh, you know, there's an article uh, with the title published in Foreign Affairs, something about basically making China just wants to make the world safe for autocracy. But I think what people 
And it's clever, a clever way of looking at it. And it's actually a way that some scholars in the United States and probably also the UK and elsewhere view this, which is China just wants to make the world safe for itself, that somehow this is a bounded enterprise. I think the problem is that as China makes it safe for autocracy, it actually makes it unsafe for democracy. And I think the examples, you know, the Daryl Morey example, the freedom of speech, right, the externalizing of restrictions on freedom of speech are a really good case in point, right? It's not enough for China to control free speech within China. It's not even enough for China to support some of its the Belt and Road countries with, you know, the tools to do real-time online censorship, which it's doing, right? So it's bolstering the capabilities of other authoritarian countries. It's also trying to control the speech of people outside the country. And so I think to the extent that China continues to push in this direction, you are going to have a clash of models. To the extent that it tries to push its values through the United Nations on human rights, on things like internet governance, which it's trying to do to develop a sort of state-centered internet where the state will have like an off switch, right, where it can control sort of every device within the country. So you and I, if we're talking about these things, the U.S. government can say, I don't really like what Liz Economy is saying to, to Will here. Boom, off you go. So I think, you know, China can do that within China, but, uh, but other countries don't have that. But that's another example where China has a project, New IP, that it's pushing in the United Nations. So I think there is probably already underway a, a clash of values. And what we have to hope um, is that that clash of values never turns into kinetic conflict, right? That it doesn't somehow transform into military conflict and it remains in the political space, which is challenging enough. Well, Elizabeth Economy, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. Really a pleasure to talk today. Thanks so much, Will. It was great. Elizabeth Economy is Senior Advisor for China to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Her new book is The World According to China, which was published by Polity Press. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fati Octus, Oba Femi Ungun, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.